0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. His oath, His covenant, and His blood support me in the whelming flood. I love that song. I love that arrangement with the cello and the flute and the piano. And we praise Jesus for His faithfulness to us. We're going to talk today about God's unchanging nature, from James chapter 1 verse 17 and a couple of other related passages from other portions of God's word as we prepare to open God's word together let's let's pray lord god as we open your word we humbly and boldly in the name of christ ask that you would lead us to the best of all possible outcomes the learning of knowledge can merely lead to arrogance. But the learning of your truth can also lead to great affection. Oh God, guard us from the former and graciously grant to us the latter, that our love would blossom and grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Everything around us is changing all the time. I don't know how many times things have changed in the last several weeks, the last couple of months, I, for one, did not go into the work of ordained ministry so that I could look at changing CDC and local health guidelines to figure out whether we could assemble or not as a congregation, but that's what I've been doing quite a bit of the last three, four, five weeks, and these things change all the time as new knowledge comes in or as a new uh, political movement goes this way or the other. Everything is constantly changing. And when it comes to change, change is either for the better or for the worse. Think of this uh, from a simple standpoint of some uh, entertainment on television. Change for the better is a huge theme in television show. Take it, if it's a makeover show about a house, or if it's a makeover show about a person for that matter, in the first 15 minutes of the show, we see how dilapidated the house is. Or in the first 15 minutes of the show, we see how out of style and maybe overweight or not put together the person is. And then we have a program with this and that and the other thing. And then in about the last six minutes of the program, they cue the emotional uplifting music. And then we get to see the wonderful transformation because everything has changed for the better. There's another kind of show, or maybe you click through it on your phone just in pictures as far as change for the worse. I've seen a few of these that were kind of shocking. Like, it'll be a picture of, say, a a musician or an athlete or an actor that I liked in the 80s or 90s, and then it'll say, where are they now? And then you click through to the next picture, and they're running a self-storage unit in Nevada and their beer bellies hanging out and their teeth are rotting out. And you think, "How, how did that happen? Change is always for the better or for the worse. Now, both of these are inconceivable when it comes to God. If God were to change for the better, this would mean that he wasn't perfect before that change. And if God were to change for the worse, this would mean he would no longer be perfect after the change. His little book, it's a good little book called The Attributes of God. Arthur W. Pink says, God cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Altogether unaffected by anything outside of himself, improvement or deterioration is impossible. He is perpetually the same, In all of his glorious perfection. To say that God does not change is to say that he is immutable. Mutation is negated. He undergoes no mutations, no developments, no evolution, no improvement, and no deterioration of change for the worse. He's utterly consistent in his nature. And so we'll look together at this spot in James chapter 1 where James emphasizes this. He says in verse 16, "'Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers.'" And then he says in verse 17, "'Every good and perfect gift is from above, "'coming down from the Father of lights, "'with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. "'Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth "'that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures.'" It says there in verse 17 that with God, there is no variation or shadow due to change. There is no shadow of turning with God. A couple other scripture references here. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you shall not be consumed. You see, the context there is that God's people have changed for the worse, they have failed. They haven't kept their word. They've broken covenant. And yet God says, For I am the Lord and I do not change, therefore you're not consumed. In other words, God is still steadfast in his commitment to love and forgive his people. Or listen to how it's put in Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens above are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. God is utterly the same, utterly consistent, utterly reliable. There's no shadow of turning with God. So as we look together at James 1.17 and consider this topic of God's immutable nature, let's ask a few questions of this verse and about this sort of whole subject that's before us doctrinally. First, what is this verse, James 1.17, what does it mean in the argument of his epistle here? Because after all, there there's so many ways we could go with this subject of God's unchanging nature, but we have to start right here in our source material and do a, do a solid interpretation of what this verse is saying in its context so that we don't just launch into sort of speculating about this and that and the other thing. Well, James is trying to help people, just like any faithful Bible teacher or pastor is trying to help people through teaching the Word of God. And James is trying to tell his people uh, how to handle trial, how to overcome temptation, things like that. And what James is emphasizing here is how the character of God is the help that people need. In other words, the undivided nature of God is especially important in James' exhortation to the people to whom he's writing. If you look up at verse uh, 6... Or verse 5, he says, pray to God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom, he says in verse 6. But he says, ask in faith. Verse 7, for the person that doesn't ask in faith must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord because he's double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. You see, it's the instability of the human heart that is to be fixed by the stability of the divine nature. God gives generously. God cares for his people. And there's no shadow of turning with God. We can trust him. It's a very Christian instinct to relate the solution to our problems to the nature of Christ, to the nature of God. And so God's character being unchanging helps us. In verse 17, he says every good and perfect gift comes from God. And then he says in the middle of verse 17 that there's no variation or shifting shadow with God. So 17a is about the goodness of God. 17b is about the immutability of God. And then verse 18 gets into the doctrine of regeneration that God brings us forth by his word of truth, the goodness of God, the immutability of God. And then verse 18 says, the, maybe the primary way that God shows us his goodness is giving us the gift of regeneration. And the gift of regeneration is when the unchanging God changes you in a way from which you can never be changed back. Once you're born again, you're born again forever. Forever. So here we're on the character of God and the gifts of God. There's a what, a why, and a who. What is what God does for us. That's important to know. Why is why does God do what he does? And the answer is who, because of who God is. Here we're at the character of God, not just our experience of his actions toward us, but his essence in and of himself. If you'd permit me to use just a little bit of Latin, it's just, uh, it's like the best Latin phrase. Immutabilis mutans omnia. Omnia is everything. Mutans is change. Immutabilis mutans omnia. This is God's name. Unchangeable one who changes all things unchangeable one who changes all things. See, in verse 17, it says, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the father of lights in the sense that he created the sun and the moon. Genesis 1, 14 through 19, on that fourth day of creation, He uses the lights of the heavens to show us something of God's nature. Scripture consistently, when we're talking, so doctrinally, when we're talking about the character of God, we're talking about something that's invisible to us and something that it's impossible really for us to fully comprehend. And so we have to reason, or the scripture actually shows us how to reason analogically from creation up to the creator. Every time we see the sun, every time that we feel the sun's warmth, or every time we see the moon brilliant at nighttime, we should trace that back to the glory of God. The apostle John, when he's making an argument in 1 John 1.5 about God being so pure that, he, that, that there's no sin in his nature, he says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The light there being how we understand God's moral purity in James 1, verse 5. Or in, in 1 John 1, 5. James is kind of making that same argument in the extended context here because remember verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one because God is perfectly light. So here's the key link in the overall argument Verses 13 through 16, God cannot be the author of sin or darkness because God is light. And God is a light, verse 17, in whom there is no variation or no shadow. And the argument that James is making, there's sort of an intriguing riff in it because if you look at verse 17, the lights that God created, what's one thing that we know about them? from our standpoint, the sun doesn't sit in the same place. We say that every day it rises and it runs its circuits across the heaven and then it sets. When you were a kid, did you ever do a project about the phases of the moon? Or maybe you had to help your kid get their project together this year for school, the new moon, the waxing crescent moon, the waxing gibbous moon, the waning gibbous moon, and all the different phases of the moon. The, the, uh, the point here is that the lights that God created, they shift and change from our perspective, and yet with God, there is no variation or shadow due to change. The shadow due to change is probably because in ancient times, the great time-keeping technology was the sundial that showed the changing of the time by the shadow. And so in a, in a very sort of folded in on itself kind of beautiful way, James is saying, though that which God created, even the lights of the heavens may change. The God who created them never changes. In other words, God is essentially and eternally immutable. Here, God is said to not be like his creation. Scripture like Psalm 19, Romans 1 shows us that we can reason analogically from what God has created to understand some things about the creator. And yet, the creator is utterly and completely distinct and superior to his creation. There's a way that he's unlike his creation in that he never changes. So James argues from the immutability of the divine nature, verse 17, to the wonderful gift of regeneration, verse 18, from the impossibility of God tempting to sin in verses 13 through 16. This is what the verses mean in their setting. Now let's ask, because it's really helpful to ask a couple of clarifying questions about this doctrine, which is kind of hard to wrap our brains around about the unchanging nature of God. And the first question that obviously comes up is, well, if we have a relationship with God, don't things change in our relationship with God? Doesn't God have a relationship with us in which we genuinely interact? is isn't change involved in that. Uh, there scriptures that say that God repented in the old language or that God changed his mind. Several scriptures say that in the Old Testament. What do they, what do they mean? Well, the doctrine of divine immutability is about stability more than it is about stasis. In other words, God's not frozen. God uh, relates to us but God relates to us from the immutable reality of who he is. When the scripture says that God repents or changes his mind, this is talking about a relational change, and it's using, again, that analogical or comparative language. The scripture says God changes his mind. It means there's a change in the relationship, There's a change in the outcome from the human or angelic side. But it's not saying that there's actually a change in the character of God or in the mind of God, so to speak. In other words, God's intentions are always the same from the reality that is his own character. And he's always intending to reward the righteous. And he's always intending to forgive his elect. And he's always intending to punish the disobedient. When it says that there's a change... It doesn't mean that God's character has changed. He is still the same. But what it always entails, if you look those passages up, is there has been some change in the angelic creatures or the human creatures that have used their God-given volition, their God-given choice to, to do the things that they've chosen to do. And so they have aligned themselves differently, so to speak, with the unchanging purpose of almighty, immutable God. So this concept is, you know, we, it, when, it, when it says that God changes or changes his plans, it's using anthropopathic or analogical language, the best that we can understand from creation, to try to describe something that's beyond really our uh, understanding. When God says, I, the Lord, change not, What does this mean? Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, change not. Well, it it doesn't mean I'm up here and I'm never going to take any action in your life. The whole story of this Bible is about God taking action in the lives of his creation. It's not about, when, when we say that God's immutable, we don't mean that he's frozen and that he doesn't relate with us. What it means is, and this is good news, what it means is that God's will is determined from within himself, not from without. God is saying, I'm the Lord, I change not. He's saying, my character and my actions are ever determined from the perfection of my own unchanging holy nature. God loves us. And God interacts with us. But the fact that God loves us certainly does not mean that God can be wounded or injured or changed by us. God's love, and this is really great news if you'll think about it and ponder about it for long term, God's love is determined not in partnership with us. God's love is determined by the fact that God is love. God's love is determined by his own communion within himself, by the changeless character of who he is. And if you trace that out, I will maybe in just a couple of minutes, you'll see how that makes our salvation secure in a way that thinking we do half of it and he does half of it would be utterly insecure. But our doctrinal categories here are that God is immutable. The other word is that God is impassable. And the other word is that God is eternal or non-temporal. God is immutable. God is immutable means that since God is perfect, he does not change. God is impassable. That means since God is perfect, God cannot be changed by other beings or external forces. What he does is the expression of his own eternal character. And when we say that God is eternal or God is non-temporal, it means that, since God is perfect and does not change with God, there is no past and present and future. He is the eternal I am. So if we've seen a little bit of what this verse means in its context, and we've asked many other questions we could ask, but we've asked a little bit and a couple of questions about how, what does this mean doctrinally, let's ask another question. How does God's unchanging nature change us? This is sort of the application question. And when we're studying the Bible and when we're studying doctrine, we want to get the Bible right in its, in its context and interpretation. We want to get the doctrine right objectively from what it means. And then the, the last thing maybe that we do is we ask this a little bit more subjective question like how does this change me? So let's ask this question finally. How does God's unchanging nature change us? Three answers to the question. Number one, it lifts us up in worship. It lifts us up in worship. Because God is unchanging, we worship. We're seeing Bible Church. Worship grows hotter and higher the more we understand the nature of God. Uh, High emotion and high passion in worship is, it's not like that is the fire and, and Bible teaching and doctrine is the water. <laughs> High emotion and passion is the fire and the Bible teaching and the doctrinal knowledge is the gasoline and the wood and the fuel and the more we understand about God, the higher and the hotter is our worship. When we talk about God, we are talking about the one whom we can never comprehend we can apprehend true things about God. That's why I'm trying to teach you in these moments. We can apprehend true things about God, but none of us can ever comprehend him. Augustine had a beautiful way of getting at this, writing in the 400s. He said, to attain some slight knowledge of God is a great blessing, but to comprehend God fully is a total impossibility. I'm, I'm up for that. That's, I think that's exactly right. Augustine somewhere else says, we are speaking of God. Is it any wonder that we do not fully comprehend? For if you fully comprehend, it is not God whom you are comprehending. I think that's exactly right also. If the God that we're comprehending is a God that we can comprehend, then he is not God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally immutable, revealed in Scripture. The more we know about God, the more we know that we don't know about God. But that actually draws us into worship. It's not that, it's not that the, the, the more we know about him, the more we want to roll away from him because he's, he's too big. The more we know about him the more we know we need to know about him, the higher that moves us in worship. I want to encourage you to just dive deep into the character of God. If you haven't accessed it yet, uh, Darren has been doing a series online on the attributes of God and uh, some great teaching there but I want you to go higher and deeper in the character of God. If you would let me give you one more quote. This is, so Augustine wrote in the, say, 400s. Anselm wrote 600 years after that, so say in the early 1000s. And uh, Anselm gives us this wonderful phrase that has, that has echoed through church history, and it's um, none greater, none greater. And Anselm's line, which theologians have quoted ever since then, is, God is that someone than whom none greater can be conceived. God is that one than whom none greater can ever be conceived. And that's mind-blowing. That's like full stop, wow. But we ought to take one more step, and Anselm takes one more step after that says, he not only gives, gives us that line about none greater, God is that one than whom none greater can be conceived. But then he, Anselm goes on to give us this line that, that has echoed through church history, and it's in all the theology books that you'll look at. Um, it's that uh, God is not merely the greatest of all possible beings. This is how Anselm says it. God is not a being among beings, God is not the greatest among many beings. Nay, God is not the greatest of all possible beings. God is the fullness of being itself. God is the absolute plenitude of reality upon which all being depends. He's not merely greater than all possible beings. He's not merely the greatest of all the beings. He is, this is why we're trying to touch the ineffable. We're trying to comprehend the, what we can't get our minds around. God is the absolute plentitude of reality, and it's from his fullness, it's from his light, it's from his love, it's from his holiness that all else has come. I'm just telling you, worship grows hotter and higher the more we behold and magnify and and even meditate on the character of God. So if we ask the question, how does the unchanging nature of God change us? That's the first one, that it lifts us up in worship. There's a second answer. It drills us down in trust. It drills us down in trust. We walk by faith, not by sight. To enter into the Christian life is to say, I have trusted Jesus. To walk the Christian life is to walk by faith. So it's the unchanging nature of our Christ. It's the unchanging nature of our God that drills us down into trust. Think of it like this. The immutability of God is like a silk thread that runs through all the other attributes, which are so many other gems. God's immutable nature is why we find him so utterly and completely trustworthy. God's justice is unimpeachable. It will never turn to injustice. God's righteousness is incorruptible. It will never turn to unrighteousness. So believer, you can trust him in this unjust, unrighteous world. God's wisdom is unfailing. It'll never turn into ignorance. God's knowledge is inexhaustible. There's never something that he has to scramble and figure out. Therefore, believer, you can trust him. Though your plans are are, are uncertain, you can trust him. God's mercy never fails. God's love endures forever because God is immutable. Therefore, we can trust him. Trust the Lord. Listen to this, church. Psalm, uh, Deuteronomy 31, verses 6 and 8. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. The Lord your God will be with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. You can have a confident trust as you walk through life because the God who has promised to be with you is the unchanging eternal God. Psalm 62 verses one and two. For God alone, my soul waits. For from him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken everything in life shakes around us, or we drill down deep to trust in God so that we say, I have a fortress that cannot be shaken. I have a foundation that won't crumble like everything else in the world. We drill down deep when we trust the unchanging character of God. One more reference, Isaiah 43, verses one and two. But thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you go through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. The God who promises to be with you, the God who says, even when you are in a flood, it will not overwhelm you. The God who makes that promise is the immutable, unfailing God, so you can trust him. The unchanging nature of God changes us in that it lifts us up in worship, it drills us down in trust, and number three, it surrounds us with the security of salvation. It surrounds us with the security of salvation because God is unchanging. We have a salvation that nothing can steal from us. Jesus says, they're mine. The Father has promised to save them and no one shall snatch them from his hand. We have an eternal life. This is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We have an eternal life that gives us a joy that nothing can diminish. So many conditions change down here for the better or for the worse, and they make us happier or sadder. We have an eternal life that is a joy that nothing can touch. The security of salvation is the good news that God's love is determined by God. I hope you get this. If God's love was determined in concert with us, if my salvation depended half on him and half on me, then my salvation would be half secure because God's all good. And my salvation would be half completely insecure because I'm no good. And that half would ruin the whole. But the good news is that God's love is not determined in concert with us. God's love is determined by his own perfect communion within himself that he has set his love upon us from before the foundation of the world because his love in salvation is as immutable as his own eternal character. There's no variation or shifting shadow. In a poetic way, Song of Solomon says that his love is as strong as death and many waters cannot quench it. When Paul is waxing eloquent in Romans 8, and he's saying nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, the last thing Paul means is, hey, church, you you are so solid in your ability to behave. You are so solid in your ability to have a quiet time. You're so solid in your ability to make God happy by all the stuff you do. That's why you're secure. The only reason that it's true that nothing can separate us from the love of God is because the love of God is a function from the heart of God, not from our own earning. The hymn writer said, his love, these lines, they kill me every time I think about them. His love, no end nor measure knows, no change can turn its course. Eternally the same it flows from one eternal source. Eternally the same it flows from one eternal source. We're saved eternally because God is immutable. We're saved eternally because of God's unchanging love. If God's love were immutable, where would we be? We would be lost And unloved if God's love were conditional where would we be we would be breaking all the conditions and ruining ourselves day after day but if God's love is as immutable as he is and the church can say his steadfast love endures forever then we're safe The fact that God is unchanging is great news because it means that his love is unconditional and it means that the gift of salvation is unearnable and irrevocable and the promises of God are unbreakable. So rest in the security of your salvation and drill down deep in trusting God and lift up high in worship. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray a prayer of thanksgiving and joy with the hymn writer that your love, no end nor measure knows, no change can turn its course, eternally the same it flows from one eternal source. How we praise you for your unchanging, perfect love. Give to your church to rest in the reality of your character. Give to your church to trust in your promises and your word and your presence and your provision and give to your trust to worship you, the almighty God, the unchanging one who has changed all things in us. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.